to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Lee Johnson and Rick Lee. This week, we are talking about prestige TV. But before we get into that... Let's get our drink orders and what we're ranting and raving about. So, Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, Jason, today I'm just going to have a bourbon on the rocks, maybe a little splash of water just to add to the rocks, I guess. (laughs) But I am ranting today, and I'm ranting about Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So the reason I'm ranting about Vanderbilt University Medical Center is because they recently agreed to turn over transgender patient medical records to the Tennessee Attorney General's office. Now, you probably already know that Tennessee is in the midst of passing a lot of anti-trans legislation, but they are currently engaged in a probe for billing for transgender care services provided to individuals enrolled in state-sponsored insurance plans. This is not going to go well for our trans citizens here in Tennessee, but I really think that Vanderbilt could have said no, and they didn't, and so boo Vanderbilt. Yeah, screw you, Vandy. So Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? So today I'm going to go back to one of my summertime favorites. I'll have a Campari Spritz. And I need you to decide whether this is a rant or a rave. But as we're recording this, recently on the floor of the House of Representatives, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene called Representative Lauren Bobart a little bitch. I vote rave. (laughs) Well, the rave part is that I think, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it. (laughs) But it's kind of a rant because, like, our politics has come to this. So, yeah, but I think I'm raving about it. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I'm going to have a mocktail. I can't find the name of it, but I went to this restaurant, Kong Tu Bot, Portland's only union-organized restaurant. Nice. They had a ginger basil mocktail, which is great. And I'm going to rant about Charlie Kirk. We're recording this not too long after Juneteenth, and... Charlie Kirk has had this weird opposition, not weird, totally predictable opposition to Juneteenth (laughs) since it's began. And on one hand, like, I don't want to rant about this because he seems to be objecting to the idea of yet another day off in the summer. And if he wants to make that platform integral to the conservative movement, then by all means, go ahead. Like, make that really the hill you want to die on. But he tweeted out something about get back to work. Can we talk for a second about how absolutely offensive it is? Tone deaf. Well, I I was going to say tone deaf, I would go beyond tone deaf. It's like abhorrent to tweet, go back to work on a day that's commemorating the end of slavery. I cultivate a little bit of an opposition to him. I wrote a piece for Jacobin once about his objection to Spinoza. Although I also want to rant about the fact that to write that piece, I had to listen to a lot of his shows. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'll never get those hours back. I listened to them (laughs) at 1.5 speed, so it sounded like a really irate Alvin and the Chipmunks episode. (laughs) But still, I'm never going to get that time back. (laughs) You know those Chipmunks were fascist assholes. (laughs) Dave was right. So, Lee, we're talking about Prestige TV, but how do you want to go about it? 
So I think we can agree that the 21st century so far hasn't given us a lot of reasons to recommend it. (laughs) We've had terror and war and fascism and plague and climate disaster and an impending techno-pocalypse. But hey, we have had really good TV. So often referred to as peak TV, the so-called second or new golden age of television began in the late 90s and really cemented its influence in the first decade of the 2000s. The plots were complex and protracted, not episodic. The protagonists were anti-heroes, not heroes. They were morally ambiguous, hard to endorse, but impossible not to like. And there was foul language and graphic violence and full frontal nudity. And since nobody could access this content with an antenna and tinfoil, we all paid for it. It's since been dubbed prestige TV, in part, I think, to assuage the consciences of all those snooty people who love to say that they don't watch TV. But prestige TV included shows that you really couldn't not watch. Not because you wouldn't be cool or you might be left out of the most recent water cooler small talk, but because prestige TV was quite literally reshaping American culture itself. The Sopranos, Mad Men, The Wire, Breaking Bad, House of Cards, True Detective, Game of Thrones, Atlanta, all of these are examples of prestige TV. So today we're going to talk about probably one of the most uniquely American artistic movements since rock and roll. What makes prestige TV prestigious? How do we know it when we see it? What are some of the best examples of it? And perhaps most importantly, why are we getting less of it? guys, so I want to start off with one of the questions I asked in the intro. What makes prestige TV prestigious? So vulture critic Catherine Van Arendonk wrote a list in 2017 of 13 signs that you're watching a prestige TV show. And I'm particularly interested in a few of those that she listed. But I want to start with the one that I completely agree with, which is that it's like a novel or a movie. What is it about novels and movies, other than the obvious thing, their length, that seems hard to capture in a television show? And how is it that prestige TV is like a novel or a film? If I think of what I consider to be the first or among the first examples, namely The Sopranos, I think the difference between The Sopranos and any other television show that was on network TV or even on cable TV that came before is that it was one kind of story all the way through. Each episode was not really an episode, but it was more like a novel, and this was a chapter in the novel. And then next week you'd pick up, and the story was the same. And so the episodes weren't really self-contained. You know, many other shows have these threads that go through them, But each episode really is kind of Mm self-contained. So I think that's what makes these kinds of shows much more novelistic than other TV that came before it. Yeah, you can't really just drop in and drop out of a prestige TV show. Yeah. If you think of other examples like Game of Thrones, if you drop in season two, episode four, you're like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) Yeah, of course. I think one of the other things that is interesting to think about when I think about the rise of prestige TV is like what conditions both technologically and economically brought it about. And a big one, of course, is that all these shows presuppose that you could watch every episode. You couldn't do this sort of storytelling in 
in the 1980s when people watch TV and if they missed an episode, they'd have to wait until it came in reruns in the summer. Twin Peaks did this sort of early on. I remember actually in college trying to watch Twin Peaks like several episodes in and turning it on the I have no idea what is happening on this show. <laughs> and I didn't watch it until years later when they came out on video cassette and I rented them you know, one by one. But you have to be able to see every episode to watch every episode. Then you get, of course, binge-watching, and the episode almost becomes incidental. Remember when I binge-watched The Wire? Every episode ends with that signature little bass and drum bit. Mm -hmm. And that's really how you know it's the end of an episode, because there's nothing that really Mm -hmm. resolves. It's just suddenly you hear that bass and drum sound dropping into the episode, and you're like, okay, one more. It feels very (laughs) arbitrary to what you are watching. The end feels very arbitrary to the narrative you're following. Yeah, I think one of the things that moving away from the episodic format did for Prestige TV is that it allowed it to do a lot more in-depth character development. And in that way, I think it's very, very much like a novel. So in episodic television, you have characters that are more or less set. I mean, they may, of course, develop over the arc of seasons or series, but their development happens more often in an episode because of whatever situation they're placed in. Whereas in peak TV, it sometimes takes several episodes, a long story to know who the character actually is. And just going back to the example of Game of Thrones, often you kind of forget that the character is even in it, you know, Mm. by the time they come back and become a part of the story. And you have to sort of remember these very early appearances that you just got little pieces of this person before they get fully fleshed out as a character. So I do think that that's part of it. I'm not sure that I don't think that that could be done episodically, but I do think that it's one of the reasons why peak TV, because it's not episodic and because these character arcs are so protracted, really requires the kind of investment of one's time that you would put into reading a novel. Yeah, I didn't really think about the character development in these shows, and that's really crucial. So if I think of, for example, Tony Soprano and his development over the whole series, or even more so, Jennifer Melfi, psychiatrist, her development is really incredible. And that's something you really don't see in you know, friends, Phoebe's not really much different at the end of the series (laughs) than she was at the beginning. I mean, I know that's a sitcom, and so it's going to be ridiculous to say it's more about situations. But even in dramas, you know, Law & Order, the characters don't ever develop, and that's been on for like 40 years. (laughs) I will say about the character thing, one of the things that I think is interesting, one of the sort of divisions that comes up when people start talking, as they inevitably do around peak TV, which is the better show, Mm -hmm. is that there do seem to be some peak TV shows that are very much character studies, like Sopranos, I think, fits into that category, as does Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. And then there are other series that are almost more, like to the extent they're a novel, they're almost more along the lines of a sociological or social realist novel, something like The Wire, where Mm. you do have some really distinct characters in that. But the main thing that defines the show is you're following multiple characters in multiple institutions, police, schools, the mayor's office, the unions, the drug cartels, the press, press and so on. And you're really getting this broadened out perspective. And I think this is a weird comparison to make, but it always occurred to me that Game of Thrones is in a weird way, a lot like The Wire. 
Structurally, oh, yeah, it definitely. is. I mean, it's obviously it's a fantasy, and they're dragons and so on. But they both are structured the same way that where you get like a couple minute segments of multiple storylines over the course of an episode, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the wire those storylines are the police, the mayor's office, the schools, the press, and so on. And Game of Thrones are like the person with the dragon, the person <laughs> with the giant, whatever. But you know, same basic idea. Since we're comparing Game of Thrones and The Wire, yeah. one thing that they have in common, and this is Another thing that was on the list of Van Arendonk's 13 Signs That You're Watching a Prestige TV Show is Darkness. I mean, these are both very dark shows, not just aesthetically dark, which they both are, but emotionally dark, psychologically dark. Yeah, and I would add The Sopranos to that list. It is really emotionally dark as well. The only example I could think that doesn't quite fit that is the more recent example of Ted Lasso, which was not emotionally dark at all. But it is striking that because I think a lot of prestige TV shows revolve around a central character who we can't really get behind what it is they're doing and the goals they have set for their lives. In that sense, they're anti-heroes. And yet somehow we become invested in them. And I think that's a large part of where the darkness comes from. You could say, oh, The Sopranos is dark because it's about the mafia and there's a lot of killing and so on. Yes, that's true. But it's also because we can't really get behind the purposes and goals that any character in that show has set for themselves and set out to pursue. And so it is incredibly dark. If I could just return to the Ted Lasso thing one second, because I've actually had this argument with a friend of mine whether or not we would call Ted Lasso a peak TV show. My first inclination was to agree with Van Arendonk that if you're laughing, it's not peak TV. (laughs) You know, basically, like it's a kind of essential characteristic of peak TV that it be dark. And it wasn't until the series, Ted Lasso, took that somewhat dark turn that I first thought, oh, yeah, this is peak TV. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you think of any other example of a funny or a happy show that you would call peak TV? That's what I was just going to ask. I mean, I liked... This doesn't make most people's list, but I liked Lodge 49. I don't even know what that is. Me neither. It didn't last very long. Two seasons, I think. Reservation Dogs, maybe. Yeah, but Mm. that also has its dark side to it. Yeah. Atlanta 2. I mean, Reservation Dogs Atlanta seemed to me to be like a more recent mutation in peak TV. The shift more towards Mm -hmm. a shorter show that's modeled a little bit more like a comedy, but not quite white in that weird dramedy sort of space between the two. But I do think that to Mm -hmm. some extent, peak TV works on the assumption that to be dark is to be smart and that to be fun and happy is to be dumb. Unserious, yeah. Unserious. And I think that the arguments around Ted Lasso really illustrate that. I think for a lot of people, the fact that it is such a light and breezy show is an argument against it being peak TV because it's not smart enough. Although Ted Lasso really had some of the smartest jokes on television. It did. And I think it also had some really smart character development. Mm -hmm. It treated a lot of relationships in an incredibly smart, serious, and sophisticated way. But this goes back to something you raised in your introduction, Lee, that I'm now wondering about. And that is because Ted Lasso was on Apple TV, 
I'm more inclined, just because of its location, to call it prestige TV. Mm -hmm. In other words, if I pay for it and I can't get it other than by paying for it, I'm more inclined to call it prestige TV. I think that's probably not necessarily the case, but I would still argue for Ted Lasso being prestige TV. Yeah, I would argue for Ted Lasso being prestige TV because... And spoiler alert, listeners, by the end, it turns out that all of the happy, breezy, fun-loving, good-feeling character of it was built on something very dark and depressing underneath. And we, of course, don't find that out until the end. Yeah. But Jason, you said a moment ago that to be dark is to be smart and serious, and to be funny is to be light. And I'm wondering then how much of prestige TV emerges out of a way of thinking differently about what TV can be. And if you then look at the examples before prestige TV, you have either sitcoms, which none of the examples we're considering as prestige TV are, Or you have a lot of police procedurals, Mm -hmm. a lot of law procedurals. I'm thinking about L.A. Law or Boston Legal or shows like that. And when you look at The Sopranos, one of the things that's striking is that it really is decidedly different than either of those examples. And so I'm wondering if the move more lately to comedy is a move that can only be made after prestige TV sort of has its legs under it and now can undergo its own development. Hmm. Yeah, I remember reading an interview with David Simon, creator of The Wire, when he said that when he pitched The Wire to HBO, their first response is, no, no, that's a cop show, cop procedurals, that's on networks. We're not doing that thing. We're doing something else. And of course, (laughs) his response was, well, it's like that, but we're going to do it in a fundamentally different way. And I'll to segue off of that into another way of thinking about prestige TV, another definition, I think of prestige TV on an almost economic model. Like, why did HBO, which for a long time had this business model of pretty much running movies? I mean, they had TV shows, they had specials, but when they did The Sopranos and they started their whole, it's not TV, it's HBO, mm-hmm. which I believe is 1999, that's two years after Netflix emerges as first the mail-order DVD thing. And I think that part of what HBO did is they recognized that if their business model was showing you movies you could have seen at the theater six months ago or a year ago, that that was going to die out because people had a quicker and easier way to get access to movies. And so you create The Sopranos, right? And to some extent, going back to the Ted Lasso example, right, a lot of these now new streaming services, they get on the map by having a TV show that everyone feels like they must have seen, Mm -hmm. right? You know, AMC, American Movie Classics, which always was a weird channel because unless your definition of a classic movie is Roadhouse by Patrick Swayze, (laughs) they had a a strange repertoire of movies they were showing on a regular basis. Not to say that that isn't a classic. You know, some great lines in there, pain doesn't hurt. There's a classic film. But they got on the map by creating Mad Men and Breaking Bad and so on and Pretty much every streaming service you can think of now, it comes into existence by having a show which everyone must watch and must subscribe to, which also creates this bizarre situation culturally now 
where I saw a little skit where it's two guys at a bar talking and they're like, oh my God, have you seen Poker Face? And the other guy's like, no, I don't have Peacock. It's like, what I'm really interested in now is Ted Lasso. No, I don't. You know, and they go back and forth and they can't find any common ground yeah. because of these sort of digital fiefdoms <laughs> that each of these different streaming series run under. Well, I think we probably all agree that Peak TV started with HBO or HBO started so. Peak TV. Not to say that there weren't maybe a couple of contenders for peak TV shows that were not on HBO, but it was the one that really started putting out consistent new prestige TV content. Because HBO was, of course, a, a prestige, I was about to say a prestige <laughs> channel, a cable channel at the time, you know, it was also allowed to do a lot of other things that network television or basic cable was not allowed to do. And so we're kind of missing one of the big characteristics of prestige TV, which I think we have to talk about, which is, of course, of the breasts. <laughs> you know, Peak TV is allowed to have more violence, more nudity, more obscene language, et cetera, et cetera. How important do you guys think that is to Peak TV? It can be kind of redundant. I remember when I was watching the first season of The Wire, which I got into a little late. And in the first season, Avon Barksdale runs his drug business out of a room above a strip club. Mm -hmm. And the camera went through the strip club. And I remember just thinking, really? Again, <laughs> you know, thinking back to the Sopranos and the way that the strip club just sort of functioned as a gratuitous display, like it wasn't integral. But then it's interesting that I think after that, The Wire was pretty uninterested. I guess there's the brothel scene later in season two, but it became pretty uninterested in nudity as far as I can tell. But uh, can you imagine The Wire without profanity? No, not at all. I mean, come on, there's a whole episode. The only word is, is fuck. Yeah. They talk entirely in the F word. But anyway. And even the violence, which you couldn't depict that on network TV or even basic cable, there's mm. an obscenity to the level of violence sometimes. I mean, some episodes of The Sopranos, I thought the violence was really obscene. And I'm not sure that for the plot or for character development, the depiction of either naked women, and it's almost always naked women. I mean, there are tons of scenes in the Bada Bing, in the Sopranos, where men are the recipients of oral sex, and you never see them. But it's not central to the plot or character development. And I think the same thing with the obscene mm -hmm. violence often doesn't seem central either to plot or character development. Talking about The Wire, the other thing that would never have been shown on network TV, which is just the drug use, the very explicit graphic yeah. way that particular kinds of drugs were manufactured, sold, used, etc. And this is where I think that you know, one of the arguments in the early days of Prestige TV was that Prestige channels, the paid cable channels, allowed their creators more, quote unquote, creative freedom. And, you know, some people say, well, all that means is that they can swear and, you know, show full frontal nudity and all that. But, of course, they couldn't have done a show about the drug trade in Baltimore. They couldn't have done a show about corrupt police. They couldn't have done a show about the inner workings of the press and politics, etc. You know, they couldn't have done that on network But television. I'm wondering, aren't there other ways, I don't know the word to use here, filmically or imagistically, to indicate drug use, just to use that as an example, without having to show it explicitly and directly. Isn't there a way to depict the violence the mafia engages in without directly showing that violence in very graphic ways? 
Yeah, of course there is. But I think part of the sell of this kind of content is that it's authentic or that it's closer to real life or mm. that it's showing us things that we maybe don't want to look at. That's part of the thematic darkness of Prestige TV, I think. So yeah, of course there's other ways to do it, but isn't part of why we're drawn to it is we feel like we're seeing something that A, we can't see anywhere else, B, we might not want to see, but C, we're kind of happy we saw after we see it. (laughs) Right. Just that there's an equation between darkness and seriousness. There's an equation between the violence and the nudity and so on as itself being a kind of realism. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that always bothered me, and I was a huge fan of The Wire, is that people would talk about it as being so realistic. And I was like, I don't know anything about what it's like. Yeah, how do you know? (laughs) To sell drugs on the east side of Baltimore. I can't, I'm not going to make that claim. Yeah. And then it even became more absurd when the Game of Thrones creators became under criticism for sexual violence towards women. They said, oh, it's our attempt to be realistic. And you're like, you got (laughs) pet dragons on your show. Realistic to what? (laughs) You know, and like the underlying assumption of a lot of these shows is that we live in this Hobbesian world. And the closer the show gets to that of everyone sort of screwing everyone over, the more true it is which seems to be more of like an aesthetic effect that stands in for a social or philosophical claim that I think is very dubious. This this equation that like, oh, violence, sex, these are what real life is really made out of. The more you depict that, the closer you are to the truth of things, as if not having this would somehow be a kind of distortion. And maybe I think it's partly a reaction to like we all grew up on the artificiality of TV TV mm-hmm. in which all those things are censored and dealt with in a roundabout ways that somehow the breaking through of the conventions of one medium is breaking through to the truth. But it really now in retrospect seems like it's almost more like inventing the conventions of another medium. Mm-hmm. Hence the post that we've been talking about, which outlines these conventions that kind of, you know, in an Al of Minerva moment, now we can look back and we can see, okay, All these shows had the sad man, the naked breasts, the darkness, etc., etc. We now understand what peak TV was. Since you mentioned the sad man, (laughs) which was the last sign that you're watching Prestige TV that I wanted to talk about, I do think that that vision of so-called reality that you were just describing, authentic reality, as being Hobbesian and dark and full of boobs and swear words. (laughs) Like, I think that that is the vision of reality of a sad man. I think that, you know, the POV of the content creators, at least early content, well, it's not even early content creators, still this is the case, is the point of view of a sad man, (laughs) right? And so when you take the network handcuffs off of them, give them so-called creative freedom. I'm not surprised that this is the picture of the world that they give back to you. But doesn't that then raise the question as to why it is that when HBO and other streaming services give a free hand to creators, the television experience they produce is from the perspective of the sad man, a world of, as you put it, Lee, boobs and violence. Yeah. And I think in a way, Ted Lasso does present the world of a sad man, 
but it's a different kind of sadness and a different way of dealing with that sadness. But the question is, why? And I can only maybe really think of one prestige series that doesn't fit this, but now the more I think of it, I think it does. <laughs> I can't think of the name of it, the Women's Prison series. Orange is the New Black. Orange is the New Black. And the reason why I say maybe it is the POV of a sad man is because it's not always clear to me in every episode that although all of the characters in the series are women, they're not being depicted from the perspective of a sad man. I can think of two examples of a sad women <laughs> prestige TV show. And one of them is Big Little Lies, oh, yeah. which I might be wrong about this, but I think the showrunner on that was Reese Witherspoon. And the other example is Yellow Jackets, which is a relatively recent Showtime, well, I, I believe, show, which is definitely prestige TV, which almost exactly fits all of these other characteristics. It's very dark. It's got a lot of violence, but it has an almost exclusively female cast. And if I'm, again, not mistaken, I think it has female writers and showrunners too. So, you know, there is some change, but for at least a decade, every prestige show was about a sad man or some sad men. <laughs> mad men. Sad men. <laughs> mad sad men. <laughs> yeah, right. Or lost sad men. Or, <laughs> or, you know, breaking bad sad Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. You know, Lee, I think at the beginning you mentioned sort of the way in which TV has become the new movies, right? I think about the old cliche of someone at a sort of Woody Allen-esque dinner party saying, I don't own a TV, right? That's kind of a cultural marker mm -hmm. of a previous era. And I almost imagine maybe someone's already done this scene. I haven't seen it where someone says... I don't go to the movies, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense in which the, the full shift has happened where the movies seem to be dominated by sequels and Marvel movies and so on. And television has become the space of innovation or what we used to go to to go see movies about. But I think in the midst of that, there is, you know, we sort of talked about this a little bit, like the nature of sequels and spinoffs, right? I mean, and the odd thing about a television show is it become more like, I mean, you said novels, but sometimes creators will say, we think of this as a 10-hour movie, you know, right. that they yeah. model themselves more after the movie. And it seems to me that movies, in turn, are being modeled more after TV shows. Right? Going to the movies nowadays seems like going to see a latest episode in Marvel Comics TV show that is two hours right. long or whatever. But I guess I'm also wondering about the way in which part of what is supposed to drive prestige TV is the ability to duplicate and replicate 
the success of certain shows. We kind of acknowledge that we're living maybe at the end of this thing or the tail end of this thing. And I guess one of the questions I have is why haven't they been able to keep spinning out these shows to the same success? I mean, Succession just ended a while ago, and I have started watching that, so you guys can't talk about it. (laughs) And I know the big spoiler, but when that show ended, people were like, this is the end of a certain era. Yeah. I do agree with you that the sort of conventional strategy of Hollywood right now is just a race to be second, remake something that was a hit. You know, you said maybe one day people will say, I don't go to the movies. I mean, I think I could say that about myself right now. I don't really go to the movies anymore. I think most movies suck. They wouldn't be worth going to the actual theater. There are a few exceptions, but I can remember, you know, most of my life when I would see more than three movies at the theater in a Mm -hmm. month. And now not even every month do I go to see a movie in the theater. So yeah, I think that we're already there at that point. I don't know that I would agree that Prestige TV is already in this model of trying to reproduce what's already been done. I don't think that we're there yet. I do think that we recognize that there's a kind of template for Prestige TV now. And so it's easier for us to tell Prestige TV shows from just another series or something. But if I could say one of the reasons that I think that there's less new content in terms of Prestige series coming out has to do with the fact that there's been so much reality content, true crime dramas or true crime series or things like that, that looks like, watches like prestige TV, (laughs) that I think it's taken away some of the attention. I mean, why hire a bunch of writers to create a new drama when you can just pick the latest true crime scandal and make a 10-part documentary out of it that watches like a drama. If you create a hit movie, you make money by tons of people going to see that movie in the box office of you know a billion dollars or whatever. If you create hit network television, you charge more for advertising and you make your money this way. Mm-hmm. If you create a hit TV show, especially on a streaming service – you might drive up subscriptions. I'm pretty sure a lot of people didn't even have an, what is it called? Apple TV? What do they call their TV? Didn't have that until Ted Lasso came along. They started hearing about it. They got a subscription. But most of these businesses are subscription-based. And weirdly enough, the subscription company doesn't make more or less money if you're watching or not watching the show, as long as you keep your subscription, right? I remember once reading right, an interview with right. David Simon where he said, you know, The Wire didn't really have that big of an audience, but they had a lot of people who thought they were going to watch The Wire one day. And as long <laughs> as those people didn't cancel their HBO subscription. It's like the gym membership. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It, it, and I'm sure right now, since I don't think Apple TV has had anything as successful since Ted Lasso, they're making their money because people are like, oh, yeah, I stopped watching Ted Lasso a while ago, but I forgot to cancel my Apple TV. Yeah. And so it is a subscription-based model. And it's also one in which, except for Netflix, most of the streaming companies are running at a loss still right now. Oh. And they're trying to grow subscribers. And you have seen this shift. You know, There's an article, and we should probably link to it, saying that the age of prestige TV is over. Now we're living in trough TV. Networks like AMC, who did Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Better Call Saul, like what are they doing now? endless spinoffs of The Walking Dead. Right. And Mm -hmm. to some extent, Mm -hmm. what's odd is we have the combination of the supposed idea of television being the space for risk. But the other thing that's happened at the same time is that because of streaming and so on, 
producers of these shows know better than movie companies did and better than TV companies did with Nielsen ratings. They know exactly what people are actually watching. Yeah. And they know how to generate that. And that sort of data is being used to produce... I mean, I think the new model for CCV seems to be more like a blockbuster movie and less like an independent movie that so many of these shows used to be, or quote-unquote independent movie. Hmm. I mean, I think of Game of Thrones as being, in a weird way, the end of prestige TV because it had a much bigger audience than The Wire, and even The Sopranos, which is bigger than The Wire, I believe. It had a much bigger audience, and this idea of couldn't we create a show that is more like a blockbuster movie and less like an arty independent movie. Yeah, I mean, Game of Thrones also only released one episode a week, right? It was must-see TV, which so many of the new series just dropped the whole series all at once. I think that is a big difference, which kind of leads me to the question I was going to ask you. Why is it that network TV isn't producing prestige TV? I mean, you guys were saying earlier that you could do prestige TV without all of the graphic violence and boobs and stuff, but... If that's true, why can't network TV? Mm -hmm. Because that's where prestige TV would be profitable. Right. I mean, I think of some network shows that if they weren't prestige TV, were already leaning in that direction. And one that comes immediately to mind for me is NYPD Blue. Mm. I remember seeing it and thinking to myself, this is different than anything I've seen before. And I think it had some elements of prestige TV. I mean, they couldn't show breasts, although we did see Andy Sipowitz's butt, but there was the sort of, and I'm going to use Lee's word rather than Jason's word, it had an authenticity, a certain grittiness that also had to do with camera movements and the multiple storylines and the quick cuts and so on. But I feel like that was a kind of prestige TV. And then Lee, in your introduction, you mentioned Lost certainly not episodic. And I don't think NYPD Blue was really episodic. I think there were stories that carried across several episodes and even seasons. There was character development throughout. And so I think there were network shows that had this. You're right, Lee, that networks learned early on that reality TV is cheaper. Mm. Not only writers, because I don't think they're the most expensive part of it, but the entire production. You don't have to pay actors or not as much. It's mostly in editing that the show is made. You just let the cameras roll. And so really, we don't need to hire really good cinematographers because we'll edit it to make a show. And I think they caught that bug early on, and they are producing a lot more reality. And I'm wondering if there's going to be a realityification of (laughs) prestige TV. Yeah, I mean, I think there already has been. I think that that's what we see in these five, ten-part docudramas that we see on Netflix and Hulu. And I mean, all of the channels have that. Right. Most of them are true crime dramas, I would say. But, you know, just last night I was watching this really great five-piece, maybe six-piece docudrama about the Jerry Falwell and his pool boy thing. It's called God Forbid. It's on Hulu. It's fantastic. 
Also, I, for some reason, just completely missed that cultural <laughs> moment. I didn't even know. But these sorts of things are really telling stories in the format of prestige TV, but again, without actors. So in the format, you mean they follow the 13 signs or most of the 13 signs. Yeah. Right. So the yeah. sad men. They're dark. They're depressing. They've got boobs. They seem more like a novel. They're not episodic. Yeah. And they're swearing, even though it has to be beat. No, no, not on. I'm talking about oh, streaming. You're t- oh, okay. Docudramas. Yeah, yeah. Because you were saying, I wonder when the prestige TV that we see on streaming platforms is going to get the reality hit. And I'm saying that's already happened. Right. Yeah, but how much of what counts as prestige is driven by critical and popular hype? Because, mm-hmm. Lee, you turned me on to the Apple Plus series Severance, which is the reason mm-hmm. I keep my Apple Plus subscription, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm waiting for the next season of that. And yet there's not a huge buzz about it. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. And I have a few sci-fi shows that I've discovered that I would call prestige TV, except there's no hype. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what services they're on, but one is for all mankind yeah, yeah which is a retelling of the space race and the other is an apple tv series called silo which i find to be remarkable and, and has a lot of the hallmarks of prestige tv it's dark and it has a sad man there are no boobs there is swearing <laughs> it's depressing and there's not a lot of laughter But that, I don't think, would count as prestige TV. And so I'm wondering, like, critics don't seem to be bringing to the forefront discussions of these reality-based streaming series in a way that they do scripted-based series. That's an interesting point, because my inclination is to say that it's neither critical acclaim nor popular appeal that makes prestige TV prestige TV. So... I do think that it's about the aesthetics and the structure and the drama. But Jason, what do you think? I mean, I think the opposite. I think a prestige TV show that no one watched and no one tweeted about and no one wrote think pieces about, in some sense, wouldn't be a prestige TV. That To some extent, all of these things that exist around it are part of what makes the prestige television show the prestige television show. Like, this was very clear in the early ages early ages guy makes mean, so long ago uh, there was a strange tendency in the early 2000s 2010s of elaborate websites that did show recaps television without pity existed the av club you know the officer of the onion you spend mm-hmm. a lot more time on this and it was a strange genre because as we mentioned earlier most of these shows were available through services like streaming or whatever, where you never missed an episode. You didn't have to miss an episode. You had some way of watching it. So who were the recaps for? But I think that for some people, part of the enjoyment of the show was the endless dissection and discussion of the show. And that Prestige TV was in some sense like a novel in that You don't just watch it, you watch it, talk about it, debate it, and discuss it. Because the other thing we think about the economics of prestige TV is that these networks were contending with piracy. And I do think that one way you deal with piracy is to make people incredibly worried about spoilers and make people feel like they not only have to see that episode, they have to see that episode that night. Mm -hmm. If they don't see it that night someone's going to ruin it for them. So they can't wait until they can torrent it the next day. But, you know, note to the feds, 
don't do that. It's illegal. In case they're listening. <laughs> but they have to watch it right away. So I do think that there's a certain way in which Prestige TV is like, it's a genre, but it's also a way of watching. And talking about, tweeting about seems to be integral to the way of watching it. Okay, so you've halfway convinced me, but if I could just push back just a little bit. What we just saw when Rick said one show that I would call Prestige TV that critics aren't talking about or people aren't talking about is whatever it was, For All Mankind. I think that is evidence of my point, which is that we can recognize prestige TV and because it fits this model, we would say, why aren't critics talking about this? Why don't more people know about this? So, I mean, I'm mostly agreeing with you guys that you're right. It probably does have to have the critical acclaim and the popular appeal to really be prestige TV. But I also think that there is an aesthetic package there that we can recognize even when it doesn't have the critical Mm -hmm. acclaim or popular appeal. Yeah, you're right. And so like, Although I don't see a lot of critics talking about For All Mankind and there's not a lot of dissection or placing it within a certain cultural milieu or talking about maybe the way in which this is a critique of the masculinization of space, even though I don't see any of that, when I'm watching it, I agree with you, Lee, I think... If it's not prestige TV, it should be. It has all the hallmarks of it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second... Hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. So I think that one of the things that Prestige TV has done somewhat uniquely is have such an effect broadly on American culture. So that even if you didn't see a particular series or a particular episode, you would be familiar with it. I'm thinking of, you know, like in Game of Thrones, The Red Wedding, or from Arrested Development, there was money in the banana stand, although I don't think Arrested Development is a prestige TV show, but, or Breaking Bad, right? I am the one who knocks, you know, these become cultural moments. Now, one of the things that we talked about earlier that is somewhat consistent among prestige TV series is that they have a rather sympathetic portrayal of antiheroes. And I'm wondering what cultural effects you guys think sympathetic portrayal of antiheroes. And we're talking really mm-hmm. bad people here. I'm thinking in particular of like Dexter right. or yeah. The Wire or Mad Men or The Sopranos or any of these that we've talked about. What does that sympathetic portrayal of anti-heroes have. I'm going to show my hand here a little bit and say that it may not be unrelated to how we elected our last president. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a very good book by Adam Kotzko called Why We Love Sociopaths. And it's about precisely prestige TV and their love of the sociopath. And he defines a sociopath in the sense of someone who is aware of the social norms and rules that we live by, but subverts them and usually also is able to manipulate them in some way, right? Mm-hmm. The Dexter example or the Mad Men example of someone who knows how you're supposed to act and is able to employ that 
on some level. And he ties this to the fantasy of, we always wish we could be exempt from the rules that we think of others as having to live by, right? The fantasy of wanting to not have to be determined by norms, but being able to do whatever it is we want and so on. A lot of these sad men are also sociopaths. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a negative dimension of it. Although I do think one of the weird things that happened with Prestige TV is because the sociopath became so much a part of it, you did get a show like The Americans, which was able to show sympathetically, you know, communists and Russian double agents living in America because we had all accepted the template of people who are secretly drug dealers or people who are secretly serial killers, people who are secretly Russian spies didn't seem to break the format. But I mean, there's a certain way in which it allowed for something that you couldn't imagine ever seeing on TV, which was people cheering on Reagan getting shot. How else could that (laughs) have happened without the sociopath being accepted as the norm? Well, I do think that you're bringing up something that is a kind of positive aspect of these portrayals of antiheroes, which is that it has given us all a bit more sympathy to the idea that you know, nobody's a good guy or a bad guy, right? I mean, everybody is complicated. Everybody's got inner demons. Everybody has moments when they show up, when you didn't think they would show up, when they do good, when you didn't think they would do good. And I do think that that has had a good, larger cultural effect. But I agree with you that the the sympathy to sociopaths hasn't fared well. I also think this goes partly back to a point Jason made early on in our conversation. There is this if not equation, at least close connection between these dark anti-heroes and their being interesting or somehow important. Mm. That is, if a TV show showed a guy like me doing my everyday life, that doesn't make great TV. And then there's a missing link in the logic here. Therefore, someone who is a sociopath, someone who is exceeding the boundaries of what counts as permissible, exceeding the boundaries of what counts as good, they are, by that very fact, interesting. Mm. And I have a problem with that elision, that movement from they're bad, therefore they're interesting. And I think that's one of the downsides of this focus on the anti-hero, this connection that being bad is the same as interesting. To just like jump feet first into your suggestion, Lee, I think our most recent president was an example of this, that being bad in and of itself was interesting. And he exemplified the motto that there's no such thing as bad press. And so I'm just going to be talked about all the time because that's interesting. Our second most recent president. Yeah, not our current president. (laughs) Right. Right. No, I mean, I agree with you. It's the elision of anti-hero and hero. Yeah. I haven't read Adam's book, Jason, but I'm not entirely convinced by the argument as you outlined it. I mean, I do think there is something about watching the transgression not to get too Freudian about this, that does allow a certain release of my need to not be bad in those ways, Mm -hmm. the social pressure not to be bad in those ways. 
But I don't think we all have this desire to be the sociopath. I don't think we all have the desire to do these things that these anti-heroes are doing. Right. I think one interesting example of that one is Breaking Bad, where if you read Vince Gilligan, the creator, he said that he wanted the show to be a show where someone goes from being, as he's quoted as saying, Mr. Chips to Scarface, right? Goes to being the hero to the villain. And in a weird way, a lot of the audience didn't get that. Because you saw for a while, I mean, it's been a while since the show was on, people wearing Heisenberg t-shirts and people using that meme, say my name, as kind of statement, not of like someone who's gone so far lost, but as someone who's like a badass. And like the weirdest example of this was the hostility towards the character of his wife, Sky, who was worried about her children and worried about like their safety, got so intense that she wrote an editorial in the New York Times called I Have a Character problem about the weird hostility she as a person was getting because she was holding back Mm -hmm. Walter White from becoming Heisenberg. I mean, it's a strange example. The show creator was like, this guy's bad. You should think he's bad now. People are like, no, no, he's not bad. He's badass. And there's strange (laughs) identification, which I think ties into another thing that I've written about, which is not the relationship of these shows and morality, but the relationship of these shows and work. A lot of these prestige shows are about a certain kind of work, but a certain kind of all-consuming work. Mm. And a certain fantasy, especially in Breaking Bad, where you could be so good at your job that you literally kill your competition and kill your boss and become a self-made man. Mm -hmm. So much so that there are stacks of money that are bigger than you can possibly count. And the way in which a lot of these shows became fantasies about being good at your job, which is strange because a lot of them were also written as being about a certain decline of work, right? I mean, Tony Soprano's greatest line is, I feel like I got in at the tail end of something, right? right. The sense that he was becoming a leader in the mafia long past its prime. Or line from The Wire, you know, we used to make something, now we just got our hands in each other's pockets. A lot of these shows were about a certain kind of decline of the Fordist man, career man, yet their transformation into a different kind of work one that is more consuming, takes up more time, and transforms one's personality was viewed by their audience not as a criticism, but as something that's really cool to be. I'm the Heisenberg of coding, man, right? I'm the Heisenberg of coffee. Like, I'm so badass at what I'm doing that I'm going to displace all of my competitors and it's going to be just say my name. And one of the things interesting about The Sopranos in this direction is the fact that to a large extent, Tony has the problem that any manager has these days. You know, the industry is shifting and like, how do you motivate your workers? And how can you get people who in your industry are engaged in bullshit jobs to act as if they enjoy it? And he also has a lot of pressures of a newly upper middle class man and his family moving into the suburbs and the acceptance problems he has with that and so on. I think all of that is really interesting. And that this is the mafia is almost, I'm not saying entirely, but almost irrelevant to Mm -hmm. The Sopranos. Going back to something Rick said earlier, I agree with you, Rick, that not all of us want to be sociopaths. But I do think that all of us want to be understood as complicated. And I think that that is one of the things that these portrayals of sociopaths accomplish. Is like, look, even this person who is obviously the villain 
is sympathetic in many ways and complicated in many ways. But I wonder if that kind of sensitivity that sometimes bleeds over into exactly the kind of illusion that Rick worries about, I wonder if that is a relatively recent thing and that if it isn't the consequence of having so many anti-heroes portrayed to us on prestige TV. I mean, this really kind of comes up in the 90s. I'm thinking, for example, when I was a kid, you know, I'm a 70s and 80s kid, right? When Star Wars came out, which everyone was obsessed with, no one wanted to be Darth Vader. Right. right? Like everyone understood the villain is the villain, right? I mean, yes, he's complicated, right? And yes, he's got a backstory and all of those sorts of things, but nobody is like wearing t-shirts that are like, I am your father, right? right. <laughs> like we would with Heisenberg. There's this move to misunderstand the anti-hero as just a hero, not bad, but a badass, as Jason correctly said. I think that that's something that we've been culturally conditioned to do, and I'm not entirely sure that the blame isn't to be placed on prestige TV. I think that we've gotten enough good things from prestige TV to balance that out, but I don't know. I mean, this seems like a pretty direct connection to me. I'm just quickly running through a timeline in my mind. Whether prestige TV presented back to us a picture of our culture that was already developing or was crucial in the development of that culture itself, I think there definitely is a relation between the two. And I think it definitely shows a strange inability to distinguish between being bad and being a badass. What being bad and being a badass have in common is there's a kind of violence at the center of them. And I think that we are in a current situation in which being a badass is one of the most popular ways of being a hero. Yeah, or I think as Jason would say, the difference between being bad and being a badass is that a badass doesn't work for wages. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of these complicated characters, I have for a long time taught Black Mirror episodes as part of my classes. And I'm not sure that I would necessarily consider Black Mirror a prestige television series, although that's almost entirely because I immediately count something out if it's episodic. And of course, Black Mirror is episodic. But now that I'm thinking about it, it probably is prestige TV. But I teach it largely because I do think that the complicated, nuanced, also quite dark picture that it paints allows us to ask philosophical questions in more interesting ways than either philosophical texts or even real life give us. And so I'm wondering if you guys also find prestige TV useful pedagogically. Mm. I think it's less useful than I thought it would be Mm. for two reasons. One, I don't necessarily think everyone is watching these shows as much as we think. I think if you travel in certain circles and if you read certain periodicals like the New York Times, New Yorker, Atlantic, etc., you get an inflated sense of the cultural importance of some of these shows. That they're watched by a very vocal segment of the population, people who are talking and discussing things, but they're not watched by a lot of people. And so I would have times in class where I'd have a reference to like The Wire, Breaking Bad, and like crickets. Right. The one or two mm-hmm. students would nod along, but they were the one or two students who were already into philosophy and nodding along 
along to begin with, so it wouldn't help. And then the second thing that I really struggle with as someone who teaches philosophy of film and uses film in some of my other classes, like on the politics of work, is that you can't really watch an episode of one of these shows. I mean, Black Mirror being an obvious exception, but it seems weird to also assign someone a season of a TV series. Like, (laughs) watch season two of The Wire before class next week. So they're a little bit hard to navigate because of that. And part of that makes me nostalgic for the time when film was the place where serious issues were being discussed and dealt with. And it still does happen sometimes in film, but as you said earlier, it's rare and far between. So television seems harder to use pedagogically and even sometimes harder to write about because the narrative is so much longer than an episode. So even to summarize the show you're talking about, to introduce some themes, seems like, oh my God, I got to talk about this and that right, and so yeah. on. And they're a little bit more just ungainly is the word I come back to pedagogically and yeah. in critical discussions. So I, in general, tend not to use TV or even movies in my teaching, partly for the reason Jason just mentioned. It's not a way of thinking and writing and speaking that I'm used to, and I often have a hard time figuring out how to approach it. And the only time I do use media in teaching is in my class on the philosophy of comedy. But that's never any prestige TV, which as someone who's interested in theory and philosophy of comedy, it's interesting that there aren't prestige comedies Mm -hmm. in the same way that it's very incredibly rare for the Best Picture Academy Award to go to a comedy. Except I have talked about episodes of Black Mirror, but they're because it's packaged, I think, in such a nice way. Yeah, it's gainly. Yeah. You know, for our listeners who aren't aficionados of prestige TV, I don't want us to give the impression that there's no humor in prestige TV. I mean, some of the funniest moments ever were in The Sopranos or honestly in Game of Thrones. You know, there were some hilarious moments. But yeah, it's always a... uh, a snortle laugh and not a belly laugh. <laughs> right, right. The plots and the characters are not comedic by any stretch of the imagination. No, no. <laughs> but I want to go back to something Jason said in his response, namely when he asked or said, he didn't even ask, he said that fewer people are watching prestige TV than we think are. And that got me wondering why they are so appealing to coastal intellectual elites like the three of us. (laughs) Because it does seem that the interest in The Wire is driven to a large extent by a certain kind of critical and theoretical uptake. Mm -hmm. I know a whole lot of philosophers who have watched The Wire and not so many normal people who have watched The Wire. I'm wondering, what is the interest among that kind of intellectual crowd in these anti-hero-driven, dark, sad men-based prestige TV series? Why do we find them interesting? Yeah, I'm wondering that too. I'm wondering if it gets back to Jason's earlier point that we see dark as serious and smart. Mm. 
I also wonder if it's related to the fact that maybe starting in the 1950s, but certainly in the 1960s and 70s, literary theorists, philosophers, other cultural critics and cultural theorists started insisting that even low culture is worthy of critical attention, is worthy of thought. And certainly, I think The Wire, I'm not saying it as a series is low culture, but it depicts a world that through the 19th and early 20th century, no one would have thought was worthy of being depicted. Yeah, the question of what their appeal is, is an interesting one. I mean, philosophy is guilty of the dark equals serious thing too, right? I mean, how many philosophers out there write about death and you start talking about joy, like someone like Deleuze does, and people snicker at that, not philosophically Mm -hmm. serious. So in some sense, it's made for us. I mean, prestige TV is in some sense preoccupied with how much of ourselves we make and remake through the kind of work we do. And I think that that's a pressing concern for a lot of us, that we are being possibly made into something we don't like. We're worried that in our own attempts to be badasses, we might just be becoming bad to invert the formulation. Yeah. And that's right. part of the appeal of prestige TV. Mm. Yeah. And then Trump is elected president. <laughs> All right, guys, well, we're getting last call and we need to start wrapping things up here. But while we're sipping on these last drinks, I have three questions for both of you. First, I want to know, and I'm sure our listeners want to know, what your favorite prestige television series is. Second, what you would like to see a prestige television series made about that hasn't already been made. And third, whether or not you think we're at the end of the prestige TV era. So, Jason, let me go to you first. Okay. So, to kind of encapsulate multiple parts of the question, my favorite current prestige TV show, I think, is Reservation Dogs. And I think it's post-prestige in some ways. It is, in some sense, still dark. But I do think that at its core, it's about four friends who really care about each other. And it's also about something we haven't seen on television since there's been television. It's about life on a reservation, about indigenous Americans and their experience. And I think that in talking about that, I'm talking about the possibility that the prestige era will maybe make it possible for other stories that don't get told to be told as well. Although, side point. The one thing I think is weird about Prestige TV is there hasn't yet been a recognized great science fiction Prestige TV show, with the exception of Black Mirror. Hmm. I don't understand why that's the case. I mean, there have been some interesting science fiction ones, uh, The Expanse, some of the ones that Rick mentioned earlier. I haven't seen Silo yet. What about Years and Years? I haven't seen Years and Years. Or Severance. Severance is also a good one. I like Severance. There are good stories being done in literary science fiction, but cinematic science fiction has been dominated by blockbuster form, and I would like to see that happen. I do see that there's a lot of interest in adapting the works of Octavia Butler to television, and that might be an interesting direction, too. Yeah. Rick, what about you? So, if it counts, then my favorite prestige show is Ted Lasso. (laughs) If that doesn't count, then I have to admit something to all of you. I have never seen The Wire. I have never seen Breaking Bad. I have never seen Better Call Saul. You're fired. There was another example someone raised. And I have no objection to them. I just haven't seen them. Part of the problem with prestige TV is there's so much of it that I think one has to make choices. And not everyone is going to make the same choices. 
I also think that a lot of prestige TV, I just am not the right person psychologically to enjoy it, even aesthetically, if enjoyment is the right word. And so I tend to go for things that are either just straight up documentaries or comedies or musicals. Um, and uh, yeah, so if Ted Lasso doesn't count, then I have to go with The Sopranos because Game of Thrones disappointed me in the end. And I think The Sopranos, it's a series that I return to over and over again. I agree with Jason. I would like to see a lot more science fiction made as prestige TV, but I would also like to see a lot more Ted Lasso-like prestige TV, namely comedic, serious, great character development, and interesting characters struggling with interesting problems. I just really appreciate that. And since the pandemic lockdown, I need more warm hugs and less punches in the face. (laughs) What about you, Lee? Now you answer your questions. Well, I would say that The Wire is my favorite prestige TV series. Although I do want to add that if I had to pick a one season series, it would probably be either Station Eleven or Years and Years, which I just mentioned to Jason. And I think both of those technically count as science fiction. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there's science fiction out there more than just Severance. I think that we're coming to the end of reality TV, or sorry, I think we're coming, we're not coming to the end of reality TV. I think we're coming to the end of prestige TV as we know it. I think that Ted Lasso is one direction that it could go in. Probably more likely is that we're going to see more of these docudrama series that seem to be proliferating mostly on the basis of true crime type things. But the list that we talked about at the top of this episode, I think some of those things are going to stay, but a lot of those signs are going to go and it's going to make some changes. If I had to pick what I would like to see a series made about, I think I really would like to see a series made, a prestige TV series on the model that we've been talking about here. I would like to see one made in academia where there is no shortage of sociopaths or sad (laughs) men. And I know that there was that one dramatic series. The chair. Which was terrible. And Lucky Hank. And Lucky Hank, yes, that's true. But I would like to see one that is extended, multi-seasons, long character arcs that tell many different stories at the same time. That's something that I think would be really great and really interesting. If not that, and I know this is going to sound crazy, but I would like to see a prestige television musical. Yeah. So yeah, those are my things. But listeners, we have got to wrap it up today so that you can get back to answering Netflix, who is probably asking you right now, are you still watching? (laughs) Well, before we go, I wanted to remind everybody that you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. Every little bit helps. We don't have commercials. We don't have sponsors. This is like your streaming services. We would really appreciate if you would subscribe. (laughs) Nice one. (laughs) All right. I got to go start watching The Wire. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Bye. 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 Bye.